Tonight we are going to continue our journey into the letter of 1 Timothy, specifically 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 2. Uh, and if you have a Bible, feel free to um, flip or scroll to that point. Um, and uh, as you do that, uh, let me give you a, a visual that I would love for you to already be thinking in your mind. Okay, so imagine you're driving and you're like driving down the turnpike. And as you're driving down the turnpike, uh, it doesn't seem like there's any other cars on the road with you and you realize your exit's getting pretty close. So you turn on your turn signal, check your rearview mirror, and then you kind of make your way over. And as you're making your way over into the turn, into the lane to exit the turnpike, all of a sudden somebody just lays on the horn and you're startled immediately. And you know to bounce right back into your lane. Has that ever happened to anyone besides me? Yeah, like we know that feeling. What does that feel like? Terrifying, right? Like this is, oh, like, you know, you're like, I, I could, that could have been really bad, you know? Um, and now, did that car just teleport into position just in time to lay on the horn? Yeah. Yes. Okay, we got one taker on that. Okay. Barring the, the ability of teleportation, which again is plausible, uh, but uh, not that, uh, what would we call, where was that car at? Where was it living? A blind spot, right? A blind spot. A blind spot is a space that you can't see. So as you are driving, you believe that you are all clear. You've checked. You've done what you believe to be necessary to be safe. But there was an area that you were unaware of where a car was residing, barring the fact that it didn't teleport there. Now, there are a lot of different blind spots that we can have right? There are blind spots that we can have as a culture. There are blind spots that we can have as individuals uh, that are very unique to who we are. Uh, we ha can have blind spots that are particular to you or to people like us or to whatever else, right? Uh, these are blind spots, areas of your life that you have a level of unawareness of what is happening in that area. And so this can uh, be, this blindness might be there because of things like your personality, your background, your desires, your temptations, and to an undergirds, all of that is our inherent sinfulness. Now, here is the scary part about blind spots though, right? You can't see them. You can't see them. It is impossible to see a blind spot. The moment you see the blind spot, no longer a blind spot, it has been revealed to you. So you are driving along and you are making your way to turn and one of three things happens to help you become aware that there was something in your blind spot. Either one, you uh, get in an accident. You would know pretty quickly at that point that, you were, that there was a car in your blind spot. The second thing is somebody does that nice thing and lays on the horn to let you know, hey, back over, right? And the third is that your eyes are opened at the last second. Maybe you have a passenger in the seat right next to you who's like, uh, uh, car? Car, not teleported car, just car. Don't do it. All that to say, when we are experiencing a blind spot, one of those three things can happen. 
for us to discover the truth there. Now in the passage we're in tonight, we're gonna see Paul talking about a blind spot that lives not in one culture, not in Western culture, but in the heart of every human being. Anybody who breathes, anyone with thoughts, anyone with dreams or desires. And it is a It is a blind spot that is rooted in sinfulness, but it's born in an act, and each of us actively participate in this in one way or another. It is the blind spot of discontentment. It's a blind spot. Discontentment can be defined as simply the quest for always more. The quest for always more something else. See, the heart of discontentment is I don't have enough. I need more of whatever it is, right? We can, now we might experience discontentment in different ways from one another, but as humans, we are accustomed to the world of discontentment so much so that we don't even perceive it's there right? We can have discontentment where we want more financial security, more attention uh, and popularity, more power, more control, more, more drama, more, more material stuff. Discontentment can take a number of different faces. Now, maybe you've experienced this thought for yourself. I like to call it Christmas morning syndrome, uh, where like you've been planning and getting excited about this next thing that you're going to get. And you get super excited about it. And then, and then typically Amazon brings it by your house and then you, and you open it up and you're so excited about it for like 15 minutes. And then you're back on Amazon and you're like, aha, next, always more. And I mean, Our entire culture, like our entire materialistic culture is built on the thought of always more, never enough. Now you should know that you and I are not the only humans to ever struggle with this. This is why this is a major plot point in a number of different stories that we are entertained by. Uh, I was thinking about uh, one of Ash's favorites, Nightmare Before Christmas, and uh, Jack Skellington, right? Like Jack Skellington, what's his deal? He is discontent with the life that he is living. And so he has to believe there's something more if he just inhabits the role of Santa Claus. Sandy Claus, sorry. My crutch. Then you have like The Greatest Showman, the uh, P.T. Barnum movie starring Hugh Jackman. And in that, like, isn't that like his entire thing in that movie is his insatiable desire. Uh, he even sings it in, this, um, in the song, um, For Now On. Uh, uh, always wanting more. This desire inside of him that it was uncurable that led to the devastation of his business and his family. Always more. Think about Hamilton, all three semi-musical references, right? But like Hamilton, like this is the character and the historical person of Alexander Hamilton. Always more, never enough, never satisfied. He couldn't get enough attention. He couldn't be well-respected enough. He needed everyone to bow down to him and it ended up destroying his life. See, the problem is, is what we think we desire. Our blind spot is what we think we desire is the thing. We don't, at least not completely. What we want more than just the thing is the more of the thing. We want the quest for more. The quest for more is a universal blind spot of humans throughout history. And in each 
culture and in each person, it might slightly play out differently. Now, in where we are walking in our uh, in this letter from Paul uh, that we know as First Timothy, it was written by Paul to his beloved disciple Timothy, who he is asked to go and shepherd this church in an ancient area called Ephesus, and this is a church that. Paul deeply loves. And there were these false teachers within the church who had been fueled by their great, their personal great discontentment to cause division and manipulating others to grow in their own wealth and position and power. And they are willing to manipulate and utilize the discontentment of others to build themselves up. So let's read right now how Paul speaks into this clarity. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10 tonight. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant frictions among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But for those who desire to be rich and fall into the temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some of you have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. In essence, what Paul is saying in this passage is that the flesh, your human desire, is going to always be after wanting more. Uh, Quoting another song from Greatest Showman, never enough. Like that idea, like never enough. And he begins by talking about anyone who doesn't believe that the scriptures are enough. And so he gets into that. Verse three and four, he's talking about false teachers. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Not some things, nothing. They are These individuals, these false teachers are not content with the simplicity and beauty of the gospel. They're not content with the words of Jesus, the teachings of the scriptures. They need more. They want more. So they're teaching a different doctrine. Doctrine is just a Bible word for belief, a different belief system. And it's now, now it's possible to teach beliefs that sound a lot like the Bible. Maybe it's even citing the scriptures, but it's unbiblical. It's easy to speak, to use what you might find in the Bible. But the reality is, is if, you, if you go back on Amazon after you, you find your next big purchase, uh, you will also, you can just search commentaries on the Bible and you will find somebody Somebody who is willing to back up whatever you want the Bible to say. 
It's possible. They can use the same scriptures and get to say whatever you want. I had an atheist uh, teacher back in, uh, in, when I was in junior college, way back in the day, and uh, it was for argumentation. The first thing he says, I walk into class and he has on the board, there is no God. And he said, did you know that the Bible says this? And what? There is no God? That, that, what? And he's like, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And his point was, you can get anything to say anything. It's possible. You can get your confirmation bias. And now there's enough publications out there to do exactly that. And in this day and age, these false teachers were doing exactly that. So the question is, how do we figure out which one is which? How do we figure out what is good teaching? What is the sound words of Jesus? And what's somebody who is using Jesus to their own ends? Well, that's what we start to see that Paul is talking about in this passage. First, he gives us one very important insight. He says that it does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their teaching doesn't agree with Jesus. If someone is teaching something counter to the message of Jesus, it is a different teaching. For those of us who follow after Jesus, who consider him to be our rabbi that we follow, our savior who has come to um, bring us back to life, our king who will be with us forever, our teacher is Jesus. Not Jesus plus anyone or anything or any other belief. It is Jesus. So if someone is teaching a reality that is against the message of Jesus, it's a different teaching. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, one thing that's, uh, that's a difficult reality within a very pluralistic or multi-belief uh, system culture like the one we live in is the idea of exclusivity. The idea that Jesus is the only way. And, and so a lot of people will use the scriptures and try to twist them to bend over backwards to, no, it, Jesus didn't really mean that. But read the words of Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's not like a one-off line. Jesus and throughout the entirety of scriptures are making a consistent image that there is no way back to God other than if God makes his way to us. And he did that through Jesus. So someone can teach a different reality. They could even cite the Bible to back that up. But we have the sound words of Jesus. And so it's a different teaching. Now, is it theoretically possible that Jesus could be wrong or delusional? Could he be just another human? Could he, could he be lacking wisdom or insight in this area? Could he have been overplaying his cards? Any of those are theoretically possible. And you, as a human being, are allowed to think whatever you want. Like, you don't have to agree with Jesus on this. But what you can't do is saying that that's not what Jesus meant. Because anything else is a different teaching than the teachings of Jesus. See, the option we don't get is to have, is to Jesus up our already preconceived worldviews and beliefs. They're not. And in fact, I love the word that's used here. He says, the sound words. He's not talking about like auditory, uh, the ability to perceive sound waves. Uh, that word sound is uh, the other usage of the word sound in our English language, uh, which finds its root in the Greek word that we get the word hygiene from as well. Uh, it's, it's the understanding of sound like a sound mind. Uh, this idea of wholeness, 
completeness, holistic, or healthy. So the most literal translation of this is that the words of Jesus are holistically healthy. They're complete. And these false teachers have been teaching a different belief system that is different than the healthy message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. Because ultimately that's what the gospel is. It is the most healthy reality in the cosmos. It's good news for your body, your mind, and your soul. It's good news for all of creation, which is groaning out for the day of redemption. It's good news that evil will not win forever. It's good news that he has won, he is winning, and he will win. The gospel is healthier for you than kale. It's healthier for you than using all of your RDOs um, to go hang out on the beach at Castaway Key. It's healthier for you than getting a nice massage. Now, I, I'm, not a, I'm not theologically opposed to any of those things. Uh, uh, my taste buds are slightly opposed to kale sometimes, but, the, but all those, like those can be good things, right? But the healthiest thing for you is not any other teaching than Jesus, any other way than Jesus. Now, why does this matter? Because health matters when figuring out a false teacher from the real thing, which is what Paul's gonna get into next. He says, that these false teachers are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing, that these false teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, and imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, this is the fruit of false teaching. You can tell a lot about a tree by its fruit, right? If, if you come over to our house, uh, you'll see there's an orange tree in our backyard. You might not tell that it's an orange tree because it doesn't produce oranges yet. We've had it for about three years, um, but it's not a healthy tree. Uh, now, Allie and I are not the, the best green thumb farmers in the world. Um, so that's probably part of it, but also... When we first got this orange tree, we had it in a pot because we were living in a townhome at the time and that was what we had to work with was a pot. And so we had this orange tree in a pot and we had it there for about two years. And then in the last year when we moved into our house, we put it, we transplanted it into the backyard. Now it's likely that that shocked the system of the tree because at two years of age, an orange tree is supposed to start bearing its first fruit. It hasn't borne any fruit at all. <laughs> like not even like beginning to. I, I like want to like spray an orange mist on it just to pretend that it's producing smell. It's not a healthy tree. Hopefully it becomes one and you guys can come over and have some orange juice. But right now it's not a healthy tree. See, the lack of fruit lets us know that it's not a healthy tree yet. Bad fruit also lets you know that it's not a healthy tree. We don't have to worry about bad fruit. We just have lack of fruit. Now, that might sound very familiar to the way that Jesus talked about abiding. Jesus says that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's not like a judgment statement. It's just a statement of fact. If you're connected to anything but me, you're not healthy. You're not gonna be able to bear fruit. I'm the way, 
I'm the only one that can help you to produce any fruit of significance. See, for these false teachers, their unhealthy fruit is the opposite of what Jesus produces in those who abide with him and listen and obey his word. Because what Jesus desires to produce in us is the fruit of godliness. Now, godliness, we've talked about that, a few t- that word a few times as we've went through this series, but godliness is, is what it means to be so close to God, so attached, so abiding with him that his character becomes ours. That his nutrients funnel through Jesus into us and by that we bear fruit, fruit of his. See, these false teachers, though, on the other hand, are discontent with the healthy message of Jesus. They believe they, that Jesus is just not enough. Being like Jesus is just not enough. Instead, it even says that they see godliness as a means to gain. In other words, godliness is a means to their own quest for more more power, more wealth, more prestige. And so they use their positions of authority to gain these things. Now, what cost do you think this has on those who listen to them? In verse five, it explains that it's gonna cause friction among people who they're investing into who, be, who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Depraved, deprived, and diluted. Alliteration. To be depraved That's not a word that we use all the time. But to be depraved is for something to be corrupted, okay? So for example, if if you get a virus on your laptop, uh, it becomes corrupted. The virus begins to infect the system and can shut down parts of the system and, uh, and really do a number on your laptop, right? It doesn't allow it to function the way it was created to function. It's corrupted. And according to the scriptures, All human beings are depraved before coming to Jesus. We are corrupted from our original design, but Jesus rescues us from the midst of our corruption and comes to make us new so that we can live into the concept of what his desires were for us in the beginning. See, these false teachers though, they have been trying to put a Jesus spin on their false beliefs and all it's been doing is leading these individuals into further and further corruption. And then they're deprived. To be deprived of something is to be withheld, right? Another understanding of this word though is to be defrauded. And these false teachers have defrauded individuals with their corruption. They promised, they made probably all kinds of big promises to lead them out of corruption, out of this quest for more, out of discontentment, out of their unhealth. But instead... They have sold them a false bill of goods. They're deprived. They're defrauded. And they're deluded. They have been so convinced that their unhealth is actually their freedom. That godliness is a means to gain. That if you just do all the right things, or at least act like you're doing all the right things, then somehow you'll be better. And see, what's so, what's so unfortunate is these, these, these followers of these false teachers have been sold the same lies over and over and over again until they truly believed that they're on the right path. Sound anything like the world we live in? 
I mean, how many influencers in the worlds of social media or YouTuber and podcast or blogs claim to have some secret to spirituality or mindfulness that you absolutely cannot live without? That you can be complete in whatever way you define it if you just blank. And so we can go down the rabbit hole of following, of following the voices of other individuals who are teaching a different belief than Jesus. And we don't even know it. I wanted to show you guys a picture of a salad. Salad. I personally prefer no eggs on my salad. But hey. This is, what, this is what the false teachers have been giving their, individ, their students. And they were like, eat more salad, eat more salad, eat more salad, eat more salad, eat more salad. And they tell it to them so much, this is, this is going to get you healthy. This is what's right. This is what is good. Eat more salad, eat more salad. Guys, I promise I'm not against salad. But that's because this isn't salad. There it is. It's a cake. <laughs> Illusion cakes are so cool, right? <laughs> it's salad. Keep eating the salad. Keep eating the salad. It's good for you. It's healthy. And if you keep believing that over and over and over again, your mind is changing. You're like, I don't feel healthier, but, but they say it's salad. So I got to keep eating. I must be doing it wrong. So this is called an illusion cake. You can watch a Netflix show on it. Um, it's kind of cool. Uh, I love illusion cakes. I think they're so fascinating and, and they hurt my brain. Um, they're living under an illusion. Desperately in needs of words that are going to give nourishment to their souls. Given words that, that are going to lead to true rest but instead they are being force fed something that is rotting them from the inside out. And we can think silly deceived people, these naive ancient people. I like how, how, like how do you not know the difference? But the reality is how careful are each of us in what spiritual influences we are allowing into our minds, in our hearts. I mean, there are entire industries built on different teachings on spirituality and religion, right? Again, go to Amazon. You can check. A lot of them even talk about Jesus. Most major world religions try to lay claim to Jesus. But if those teachings don't line up with his teachings, then it doesn't matter how good they sound or appear. They aren't going to lead you towards health. It's not a judgment. It's a matter of fact. According to Jesus, if we take Jesus at his words, apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him, we can bear much fruit. See, the teachings of Jesus, though, there's three problems with the teachings of Jesus. At least when, when my heart is filled with doubt. They seem overly simplistic, difficult to follow, and they don't always immediately make me feel better. And then what do we do? Who's going to make me feel better? What else is out there? So we move on. Which makes sense if Jesus is just another means to get what you want. 
If what you are looking for when you are coming to Jesus is you are looking for friends, you are looking for completeness, you are looking to feel better, you are looking for, for peace. Now, it's not that those things are all bad or even, or even not good. It's that Jesus is both the means and the ends. Jesus is not just a tool to use to get what you want. He is. Paul says in verse six and seven, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For he brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. You wanna know what the real gain is? Being with and becoming like Jesus. Godliness with contentment. Paul says that's great gain. Now contentment is a twofold reality. There's external contentment, which is that your physical needs are met. Not your physical wants, but your physical needs are met. Now, internally, your uh, contentment is that your well-being is satisfied. Your well-being is satisfied. That is contentment. Contentment is the internal ability to believe that you are sufficient just where you are. In other words, it's the exact opposite of the quest for more, discontentment. Now, if you're anything like me, contentment is really, really hard to get to. Contentment is a reality that we believe is going to somehow appear if we just get that next fill in the blank. But here's what's so tricky. I often think that what I want is the thing, but what I actually desire is simply more. And guys, there's never enough more. It's a bottomless pit. There's never enough more. Now, Paul writes in other places about contentment. In Philippians chapter four, verse 12 and 13, when he's writing to the church in Philippi, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret. Now here's Paul talking about knowing the secret. Like this is prime stuff for um, a YouTube video. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need less helpful, less wanting on social media. But he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Counter to what I believed when I was um, a 16-year-old working out with my buddies, this is not about setting a new uh, personal record. This is about contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because I abide in him, I can face plenty. I can face plenty. And I can face need. Hunger, abundance, whatever life brings, I can face it. And I can face it with contentment, with my internal well-being being set because I can do all things with him because I'm connected to the vine. And because I'm connected to the vine, nothing else can touch me. But he says, I have learned the secret. Read Paul's story through Acts. He learned the secret through some very difficult realities. So we learn the secret. It's not like all of a sudden I, I would even imagine that any of us tonight would hear this message and go, wow, I am discontent. Oh, I'm just gonna pray about it tonight and then I'll be content tomorrow. No, learn the secret. Learn the secret. Day by day, learn the secret as you draw near to Jesus. Now, I don't think that Paul's following on social media would have went super high with thoughts like this, right? Because this isn't the version of contentment we want. We want contentment with the next one. But contentment is not getting the next product or the next relationship or the next job. But it's in abiding with Jesus. 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. And now Paul is going to get logical. He said, what'd you bring into the world? Nothing. What are you going to take out of the world? Nothing. You got neither. More, more of whatever you want isn't transferable into eternity. Whatever you have accumulated in the here and now, it doesn't go with you. No matter how good the stuff is, no matter how great your life was, it doesn't go. Hence why in verse eight, he says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So he's talking about that external contentment. Your basic needs are being met. If your needs are met, you are capable of being externally content. Imagine how simple the diet was for the average person in the city of Ephesus. They likely had a very limited selection of clothes. Their diets would have consisted of bread and some olive oil, dried fish, and some veggies from time to time. That would be the average person's meal. Now, do you ever think that they wanted more? When they looked at the the wealthier individuals within their society, the individuals who had uh, these great wardrobes or had at least more clothes and were eating these elaborate meals, Do you think that they looked at that and been like, if I just had more, then it would be better. So then Paul writes into this and says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul's kind of quoting Admiral Akbar here and like saying, it's a trap right? Like, like it's a trap. Don't do it. Don't allow your heart to be tricked into believing that contentment comes with the next purchase, with the next relationship, with the next hidden spiritual reality. Contentment comes externally when your true needs are being met and internally as you draw near to Jesus and become more like him. Contentment with godliness is great gain. But the quest for more is a trap that is filled with broken dreams and ruin. Don't do it. And so then he finishes his thought, explaining in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, this is an often misquoted verse. Paul is not saying that money is the root of all evil. He is saying the love of it is a is the root of evil. The unending quest for more, for it. Why? Well, just think about, he's using an example here. He's not specifically just trying to harp on money. He is, he's giving us an example of what the quest for more does. So the quest for more, the financial version of that is the quest for more, the love of money. So what can the love of money do? That's, that's evil. Um, it can breed discontentment. It can um, lead you to over power struggles, uh, gossip. It can lead you uh, to dehumanize others. It could lead you into um, pride and arrogance. It can lead you into a number of different broken spaces. It is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, I remember back in one of my psych classes back in the day, I, I, uh, I heard about a research study that was done that showed that uh, until you had tens of millions of dollars, the average person in each financial category didn't believe that they had achieved richness. They were wealthy. 
When asked the question, do you believe you're wealthy? They said, no, but the next category up is. All the way up until the first class of people that said that they were indeed rich were people that had tens of millions of dollars. Now that's not because when you get tens of millions of dollars, now you achieve contentment. Like that's where it's at. No, they, I'm, they actually said that they would still like to have more money in the survey, but, I, but they like looked at their lifestyle and it's kind of hard at tens of millions of dollars to say, okay, yeah, I'm rich. All right, it's true. Now in reality, the average Walt Disney World cast member who is largely under-resourced, struggling to make ends meet, are still considered in the top 5% of wealth in the world. And so what Paul is saying is applicable to all of us. Don't fall into the trap. It's not about money. It's not about wealth. It's not about you need to stay in your low paying job, never pursue advancement, never find a relationship, never, uh, never buy a house, never buy a new car. It's not about any of that. What he is saying is, where is your heart? Where are you rooting your contentment? It is, is it with the quest for more or is it in the one thing that is unshakable and undeniable, the work of Jesus? See, Paul's not saying money's the villain. In fact, he's even saying that money's the problem. In fact, where we're gonna be at in the weeks ahead is that he's gonna talk about how money is actually a resource that can be used to build up and to accomplish much good and beauty. Or as he says here, it can be a tool that causes destruction and pain. It's interesting the way he finishes verse 10. He says, they have pierced themselves with many pains. The imagery I get is like somebody who is pursuing in this quest for more and they don't, and they're like, why is this hurting so bad? Not even realizing that their finger has a needle and they just can't, kind of keep pricking themselves with it. And they don't understand why is this hurting? Because you're in a destructive cycle. And see, we don't realize that because the actual villain of the story is our broken desires within us that more than anything else want just more. So take this first circle. We live on planet death where our desires are warped. Where the quest for more is in me and it's in you. But godliness with contentment is great gain. See, on this planet, we're going to hear teachings and thoughts that feel better than what Jesus has to offer sometimes. They scratch the itch for a time of the quest for more. But the fruit and the root are going to tell the whole story. Is this teaching leading me towards deeper dependence on Jesus or elevating and depending more on myself? Am I listening because I want to grow near to Jesus or to find a cure to whatever I want? Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, God doesn't promise that we get everything we dream of or desire. Neither does he suggest that having dreams and desires are inherently bad or that it's sinful to find a better job or a better relation or, an, or begin a relationship or buy a home. But what God cares about is our hearts. And if you're like me, you can feel it in your spirit, in your, in, in your heart, when you are looking for that next thing to satisfy you. I hate that. <laughs> I hate it. I hate being aware of it. It's nice when it's in the blind spot, right? 
but in the blind spot, there's destruction. So when we have awareness of ourselves and we invite in other voices to be those friends that are like, hey, you're about to run into something right now. That's good. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. Drawing near to Jesus, allowing him to satisfy our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Trusting his ability and desire to take care of you. Those things are great gain. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. And what I wanted to invite all of us into right now is just take a couple moments to just reflect. Talk with God about this. If there's something that God has been revealing to you or stirring in your heart through the scriptures tonight, maybe journal about it, put a note on your phone to explore it more. Let's just take a moment to reflect. is the quest and the desire for more, that discontentment. So Lord, I, I pray that, that you would be working by the power of your spirit in each of our hearts right now, exposing spaces that we have yet to hand over to you. Lord, I realize that in this room, there are likely those of us who, who have never uh, experienced or explored what it looks like to have a relationship with you, to trust you, to believe the sound words of Jesus. I pray right now that by the power of your spirit, you would be lifting the veil over those individuals even now, exposing them to their deep need, not of, not of um, what I could say, not of what you might do, but of who Jesus is. The pursuer of souls, the pursuer of hearts and minds. Father, I pray right now that for each of us that we wouldn't hear your word and walk away unchanged, but that we would surrender everything to you day by day, more and more. That we would truly trust that the words of Jesus are good. They're not okay, they're good.
us to experience you.